Good morning, and welcome to episode 449 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the BaseballReference.com Play Index. I am Ben Lindbergh, joined as always by Sam Miller. Hello. Hi. That was that. Was, you added a little sultriness. <laughs> yes, I did. I wondered if I overdid it as I was doing it. No, it sounded good. Okay, maybe I'll keep it. So we have a listener email show scheduled. Is there anything that you would like to attend to before that? Um, I guess uh, just real quick, we should note uh, the notice that we got about Matt Albers. Yeah, we today's the day that we do our play index segment, but we got a listener email from someone who did his own play indexing. Hopefully yes. he used the coupon code BP, although he didn't say. He didn't, but presumably he did. And this is Pete from Michigan who notes that um, while Matt Albers is uh, – not only does Matt Albers have the uh, the most games finished without a save and the longest streak to begin a career of games finished without a save, but he is actually very, very close to having the longest streak of games finished without a save at any point in a career. Mm-hmm. He's at he's at 83. The record is 87 by Terry Mulholland, and uh, Russ Springer is 85, and nobody else is longer. So uh, he and, of course, as well, Webb, are very close to a record. And, you know, I get the feeling that probably there are a lot of people who wonder why we're so into this. <laughs> I was just going to say that I wonder how many listeners we have lost by starting every show with updates on Ryan Webb and Matt Albers' games finished without a save streak. Some people yeah. must be under the impression that this is a podcast about Matt Albers and Ryan Webb. Well, I don't think I would care all that much. I mean, there's there we talk about a lot of things that we never care to revisit. And, that in fact, we forget. Yeah, uh, days later. I think that what really made this a permanent and issue for me... Saves are such a silly stat, too. They are, it's true. <laughs> I think what made this a permanent issue for me was a couple days after it came up, seeing Matt Albers pitch in the eighth inning of a game and do a save celebration <laughs> yeah. after after striking out the side and just realizing that this is something that he wants. You know, he would, like, he wants to save a game. He wants to celebrate a save. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just so, I don't know, it's sort of arbitrary that this poor guy has never gotten to save a game. He's, uh, you know, always the game finisher, but never the closer. Uh, and so I, I don't know, I find there to be something about the labels that we put on these roles that makes it uh, like a slightly tragic storyline. Yeah, and sadly, it got more tragic earlier today. Evan Drellick, the Astros beat writer for the Houston Chronicle, reported on Twitter that Albers, who has been out for a bit with a, a shoulder problem, had a setback. He has had a cortisone shot. He is not throwing for the next 10 days. And Jeff Lunau says that he's looking for outside bullpen help. So That's, a, is, that's actually quite good for his chances, though. I mean, as we've well, talked about, all, we're, all he's doing is, well, all we're doing is holding our breath and hoping to make it out of Houston, you know, because yeah. he's going to get a save if he's with Houston too long. So every day that he's not pitching for Houston is good for his pursuit of this record. And if they get outside bullpen help, that's very good for his pursuit of this record. Clearly his shoulder doesn't have the closer mentality. He doesn't, have, he doesn't have closer shoulder. All right. I was going to start this show by, by saying that we had gone a day without news of someone else getting a Tommy John surgery, getting some ligament damage, but we didn't. <laughs> the, last, the last thing that I saw before we started recording was that the Astros reliever Jose Cisnero needs Tommy John surgery so he's going to be the next guy we should have a we should have a list like like the opening of the Simpsons where they have the 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 factory with the 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 plant with the days since last accident sign we should have a someone should have a sign with days since last ligament injury Uh see how high we can go Uh all right so listener emails we got good ones this week um let's start with uh Eh, let's start with, well, on the subject of Tommy John surgery, we have a couple on, on that subject. This one comes from Aaron. He says, here's something this recent slew of Tommy John surgeries has left me wondering. If Tommy John surgery had never been invented, how would pitcher usage, development, and management be different? I have to think that the costs and benefits of a torn UCL are priced into the system right now and that if the costs of a torn UCL were significantly greater with no repair possible, teams would do something they're not currently doing in order to avoid that outcome. Agree, disagree, thoughts. So I'm sort of thinking, no, 
Disagree. Yeah, disagree. It seems to me like teams are already doing all that they can to avoid this. Even though the success rate is pretty good, as we discussed yesterday, it's still there's still an enormous incentive to avoid it if you can and not lose a, a year of a player's production and, in some cases, a year of service time. And, um, and I mean, we've seen teams certainly be careful with pitcher usage and limit their pitch counts and limit them in the minors and limit how their innings counts from year to year. So it seems like teams are already doing just about everything that they can do. I don't know that they would do anything else if, if every Tommy John surgery were a, were a career ender guaranteed. Um, I don't know. Maybe they'd continue the trends that we've already seen to an even greater extreme. But Hey, I was wondering this today. I didn't have time to research it, but I was, I was planning to. But um, what happened in the old days when you sprained your UCL? Yeah. Uh, was it, did you just keep pitching for 10 years poorly and just get worse and worse? I think so. I'd, I'd like to go back and look at that and dig through some newspaper archives and see how it was reported. I mean, I don't know when people started talking about UCLs, but um, but elbow pain. I, someone asked me today, like, what happened in the past? Is it is it that these injuries are happening more often, which seems to be the case, but also when it did happen in the past, what what happened to those pitchers? And I think uh, I think in a lot of cases the guys pitch through pain, and I mean we've seen even some cases where a guy will have ligament damage that leads to Tommy John surgery, but he will make some starts with that ligament. It's not impossible to pitch through that pain, so I think guys did that and presumably were a lot less effective. And and there are stories of guys who started out as flamethrowers and then had some injury and then came back and just kind of limped along for the rest of their career and were fringy junk baller types so plenty of stories like that so i i assume that that's what happened yeah i uh i do too Mm -hmm. okay this question comes from bp's nick wheatley shower who you all remember from the team preview episodes this year and this is related to something we briefly touched on with doug thorburn yesterday Nick asks, with so many hard-throwing pitchers needing arm surgery, Major League Baseball may want to make rule changes to protect pitchers. An effective way to do this would be to place limits on how fast pitchers can throw. What if baseball put a 92-mile-per-hour maximum on any pitches thrown? They could make things interesting by only enforcing the maximum if the pitch was taken by the batter. So if a pitcher threw a 93-mile-per-hour fastball and the batter didn't swing, the pitch would automatically be a ball, but if the batter swung, then the resulting ball in play or whiff would stand. Would pitchers who could normally throw harder develop better command? Would batters be able to discern 91 from 93? How close to the maximum would pitchers be able to throw without risking an automatic ball? Would breaking balls become more common? Could that lead to more arm injuries and make this whole rule change backfire? And how dramatic would it be to watch a batter take a 3-2 pitch with the bases loaded and see the scoreboard read 91.9 miles per hour? Boy. (laughs) <laughs> that's all that's all that i would have to say about this yeah, that guess, covers it i guess that that's... those are good questions that i would have liked to have raised <laughs> uh that's yeah. uh i don't yeah i um well do you think that batters can batters can't discern between 92 and 93 right mm, i no doubt it I mean, no especially wallets right in the time that they have to i mean they the like probably if they saw a pitcher who was throwing 94 like they would know you know after the pitch but like not while it's coming i don't think they could they could see it while it was coming Mm -hmm. yeah um and i wonder what the maximum how hard would people throw if 92 was an automatic ball what sort of buffer would you leave what would the what would the average fastball velocity be let's say every every pitcher in baseball would be capable of throwing 92 let's just say that that's the case and there's this rule that if there's a 92-mile-per-hour pitch, then there's an automatic ball. What do you think the average fastball velocity would be? Oh, um, I, well, huh? I think that it would be pretty close to 92. I think that you would see a lot of pitches go over 92. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a, a big penalty, though. I mean, that's serious. It is, but it depends. I mean, if you're throwing, well, look, if you throw it outside the strike zone, 
anyway. Like if the batter sees a fastball, yeah, sure, fat batters take fastballs. I mean, especially in certain counts, uh, they'll take a fastball. But if you throw a, you know, if you throw a one-two fastball in the strike zone, he's swinging at it, right? If it's in the strike zone, he's got to swing at it. Mm-hmm. And if he swings at it, then all bets are off. And if it's not in the strike zone, it's a ball anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, there in certain counts, maybe first pitch fastballs, you wouldn't be able to really air it out. And maybe when you're, maybe when you're behind in the count, you wouldn't be able to air it out. But you'd be able to throw a lot of fastballs, ninety-three, without risking too much. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would actually think that, uh, it would be, I could see the average fastball, I could actually see the average fastball being greater than 92 in this league. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't really considered that. That's possible. All right. Uh, this one comes from Bryce. While watching Boston foul off numerous pitches against my Rays, I finally figured I would send in a question I've been pondering for a while now. And at bat, ending in and out of how many pitches by your leadoff hitter would surpass the value of a first pitch solo homer? I think ending the at bat with a hit of any sort would deflate the number pretty significantly. So I'm most curious about your take on what I am calling the productive unproductive at bat, where an out is made. My thoughts vary. Maybe we can agree that 1,000 pitches should get through the entire staff and should easily surpass the value of one run. So working back from there, Sometimes I feel it would have to be 200-plus, as the opposing manager may just bring in another starter, and you may need to get through both of them or several. Other times, like recently with how taxed the raise pen has been, I feel it could be as few as 25. So so the question is, would you, would you, uh, how, many, how many pitches by your leadoff hitter, you're guaranteed an out, but he can see any number of pitches. How many pitches would he have to see in this at bat that ends in it at in and out to surpass the value of a first pitch home run? I want to go back real quick to the to the previous question <laughs> before we answer this one. <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, when he talked about the uh, weather breaking balls would just become more prevalent, I mm-hmm. think that that's absolutely the case. Yes, um, that they would be. Mm-hmm. And uh, when he asked whether that would just lead to more injuries, I don't know that that would lead to more injuries, but. But here's what I do know with, with I would say, a, a fairly high degree of confidence. Not not certainty, but fairly high degree of confidence. It would lead to something that would lead to more injuries. I mean, it, I think that... Here comes the motorcycle. All right. I think that um, there's... We've talked about this before. Uh, um, but basically, these guys are going to push themselves to the very brink mm-hmm. of, of their health. And if you outlaw things that cause them injury, or if something becomes taboo... And and gets somewhat well. Mainly, basically, if you force them to wear helmets, they're just going to engage in riskier behavior, and and that's an actual. I, I can't remember if I've used this specific example, um, but if uh, the, actually if you ride your bike with a bike helmet on, cars don't give you as wide mm-hmm. of a, you know of a of a space, and so it actually is you know arguably more dangerous in in one way of looking at it because mm-hmm. cars think oh he's wearing a helmet I don't have to be as careful he knows what he's doing I don't have to be as careful and basically that's the um, the world if the, whatever you do to add safety to something uh, you know it often leads to more to riskier behavior uh, mm-hmm. because you feel safe and there's a uh, there's a law uh, around this that I've talked about before and I always forget what it's called uh, so anyway I would say that if it's not breaking something uh you might see that uh in this world uh you might see guys throw 35 more pitches every game because they um you know the signs that they're losing stamina wouldn't be as obvious right if you're Mm -hmm. one of the signs that you're losing stamina right now is that your fastball loses velocity as the start goes on and if you're a guy who can throw 97 but is only allowed to throw 92 well you could probably do that 200 200 pitches in a game Mm-hmm. And so maybe guys start throwing a lot more pitches, mm-hmm. um, or maybe they start throwing riskier pitches, or um, you know maybe they maybe there's not as much need to develop efficient mechanics uh, as you're coming up. Mm-hmm. Some way or another, uh, I figure that players are gonna are gonna get injured as much as they can possibly get away with. So. Mm-hmm. That effect that you were looking for was the the Peltzman effect, right? There you go. Yeah, it's the idea that people compensate for decreased risk by becoming less cautious, taking more risks themselves. Okay, so back to Bryce's question. How many how many pitches would your leadoff hitter have to see in and at bat, ending in and out, 
to outweigh the value of a first pitch solo homer? Um, so basically, like if I'm if I'm not if it's a first pitch solo homer in the first inning, mm-hmm. I think that that's a I think that that changes your win expectancy from fifty uh, percent to I think sixty two percent. Now, not not all homers are that important, and some homers are much more important. But if it were if that were let's say the average homer, mm-hmm. then you would need to get rid of enough of that pitcher, uh, enough of that pitcher's pitches to gain a 12% win expectancy. That's really hard to do. I mean, whose bullpen is that shallow at this point? I mean, you could make the case that that starting pitcher is so much better than the worst reliever uh, in the staff that uh, taking, you know, maybe two innings out of him would be worthwhile, but most teams don't use all of their relievers in a game, and even in a series, even if it was the first game of a series that you were going to play, the benefits of tiring out their bullpen are probably um, uh, overstated and, mm-hmm. and not that valuable. Um, so I'm thinking it would have to be... A, now, now, on the other hand, there is the fact that you would also tire that starting pitcher out for that inning, and he might be, A, less effective in that inning, if he's, mm-hmm. I mean, if he's throwing 65 pitches in an inning, you would imagine that he's going to be a lot worse in the 65th pitch when he's facing your, you know, your number three or four hitter of the inning. Uh, and also, um, because of the strain of longer innings, like let's say the guy's going to throw 110 innings, uh, 110 pitches in the start, uh, and you you make him throw 30. Well, now he's got 80 pitches left, right? But if he throws a 45 or 50 pitch first inning, the stress of that inning actually probably, you know. It lowers how many pitches his manager will let him go if his manager's sensible, and so maybe you actually, uh, na- maybe now he's only able to throw 95 pitches in the start. So there's like that sort of secondary benefit of tiring him out just by having the in-inning strain. Um, I would say that something like 35 seems like the right number to me. Uh huh. Well, little- um, well, related subject then. There was a post recently at Beyond the Box Score by Neil Weinberg where he asked a similar question. He asked, would you rather be down by one run with your starting pitcher having thrown no more than 10 pitches, or would you rather that the pitcher throw a scoreless inning so you're tied, but he's thrown at least 40 pitches in that first inning? So it's a sort of a similar question. And Tom Tango created a thread about this question at his blog, tangotiger.com. And in the comments, it was discussed, and Peter Jensen supplied some data. He said that 32 pitchers have, uh, in some span of time, recent span of time, have thrown 34, 35 or more pitches in the first inning without giving up any runs. And you would think that, that those pitchers would be worse in the rest of that game just because they're so tired and they've had to work so hard in that first inning. But that turns out not really to be true. They might not last as long, but they are effective while they last. He said they average four more innings and 1.44 runs allowed. 26 of those 32 made it through at least five full innings. Four pitchers finished the seventh inning. Eight of them allowed no runs and 12 allowed only a single run. And as Tom Tango pointed out 1.44 runs per four innings is an RA, a run average allowed of 3.24, which is better than than normal, better than average. So it doesn't seem, I don't know whether that's a selective sample in some way, whether, whether worse pitchers would have been removed from those games sooner if, if they ran into a tough first inning like that. Um, maybe it's a better than average group, but... But it does seem like you you really have to do a lot to outweigh the value of a lead. Yeah, yeah. I'm re- I'm I'm reading these these. Uh, yeah, I could use an executive summary on those numbers. They're good. <laughs> You're saying these those pitchers yes. did, did well. <laughs> yes, after struggling in that first inning, after laboring, they uh, they pitch better than the typical pitcher in any outing. So they did better than the typical pitcher. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! Yeah. Yeah. Do they? Four additional innings? Well, they don't. They might not last as long, but while they're in the game, they are more effective. They have a, a 3.24 run average. Yeah, but there's no reason to think and, that. 
Look, look, I, so, but here's the thing, though. There's no reason to think that throwing 35 pitches in the first inning would correlate to more success later. Now, maybe, maybe because if there's a if there's a factor, it might be that these are pitchers who, you know, have swing and miss stuff, and therefore are are kind of engaged in long at bats where they're you know like maybe they're figuring out in the first inning. Like you could imagine a guy like Danny Salazar having one of these innings because nobody can you know have a one pitch at bat against him. So maybe there's a type of pitcher that that has a 35 pitch scoreless first inning, but basically, there's no reason to think that those 35 pitches in the first inning would make them better pitchers going forward. Yeah. And since since we're dealing with a fairly small sample, you would think that you would just throw that out. I mean, that to me is irrelevant data. There's no reason to think that they allow fewer innings because they throw 35 or more pitches. There is no there is no mechanism by which one leads to the other. Therefore, I'm throwing it out. That is not no. I mean, that's not evidence. It's just a it's a fluky result. How, 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 why? Why, Ben? I think it's. I wouldn't bet on them to be better, but the fact that they weren't worse to me makes it a little more likely that that we're that not, would be the case. Yeah, but it's, we're not talking about them being worse. We're talking about how long they're going to be able to go before they have to get relieved, and they they right. average four additional innings. But it, okay, the, so the even if they're pitcher, the average pitcher does not average f- five innings, and they certainly don't average five innings when they're pitching so well. I mean, and, what, what does the average pitcher average right now? Like five and two thirds or something? I mean, okay, it's not so, much more. So you're no, talking about a couple more, you're, couple so more. Yeah, outs from your relievers who are good anyway. So yeah. So if you if you add basically if you add seventeen or eighteen pitches to their first inning, you knock two thirds roughly off of their start. Mm-hmm. Uh, two thirds inning off of their start. Now that I would I would argue that given what we know about their runs allowed, you're actually knocking more off because most pitchers who allow one point four four runs in a game uh, go much more than five innings. Mm-hmm. And so something is something is is artificially forcing these pitchers out of the game before their effectiveness has mm-hmm. disappeared. And that something is obviously their pitch count. So I think that you could argue that, in fact, 35 pitch first innings, 35 or more first pitch first innings, knock roughly two innings off of the starter's uh, uh, outing. Mm-hmm. And so then the question, which is basically what we were expecting all along, right? Right. You add you add 15 or 20 pitches or maybe a little bit more because this is at least 35 pitches um then you're gonna you know you're gonna have an extra two innings out of the bullpen so how much are two innings from the bullpen worth compared uh, from the back from the you know from the from the bottom of the bullpen more or less or mm-hmm. from you know the fourth or fifth or sixth or whatever the extra reliever you would have to bring in is uh how much is that worth and is it worth a run and i would say that it's not worth a run because yes. relievers relievers are really good mm-hmm. uh, bullpens are really deep um and even though relievers aren't actually as good as starters they're more effective because of the roles they're using so my guess is that it would not add that it would it would force the pitcher out of the game faster but not nearly enough to make up for the lost run yeah i would agree and maybe there could be some some circumstance where that's not the case where your your whole bullpen is blown from having to pitch a complete game the day before or something um but other otherwise, I would I would always take the lead. I think uh, I would. Yeah. Um, okay. So Matt Trueblood sends us a question. He sends us a link and an attached question. The link is to a story at milb.com. It's about minor league baseball and CBS inking a game of the week TV deal. There's going to be a weekly minor league baseball game of the week during the season from uh, starting starting already. I guess there have already been two of these through August on CBS Sports, and it's going to be games ranging from single-A to triple-A. So Matt asks, is this a neat bone for prospect porn addicts to gnaw on, or is it a first step toward minor league baseball becoming an analog of NCAA football and basketball, or one of the lower European soccer leagues? So is this a precursor to, to minor league baseball being of interest uh, for something other than the fact that the prospects might one day play in the majors. I don't know what lower European soccer leagues are like. I don't know what <laughs> I, I don't know if that's I don't know what would be analogous to that. So it's mm-hmm. it's hard for me to say whether it's it would be like that. Um, I didn't think that the draft would ever become what it is now. Like I didn't think that just by televising the draft it would be um, you know 
the thing that it is now. Uh, and maybe that's just is it of, is it popular? I don't even know. Like, how it, well, many people is, watch? I mean, it's you know, it's not in the same neighborhood as as the other sport drafts for various good reasons. But um, but don't don't you feel like it 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 uh, takes up a lot more pixels on you know every team's blog smart uh, you know smart blogs and not you know not as smart blogs uh, yeah. the day that it's happening. I mean, it feels like. Um, it feels like all the news gets pushed aside in a way that it didn't really used to. Maybe I, yeah, I'm not I mean, sure that that has anything to do with televising it. It might just right. be because of Twitter and because of prospect coverage as a whole has really exploded. Yeah, yeah. but I mean, it, tr- prospects in um, minor league teams are like three years closer than draft picks are, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know, m- much more established. And you know, a, a lot. It's a lot easier to identify which ones are going to have a career than on draft day. Um, and yet, you know, a significant percentage of the fan base still uh, gets caught up on draft day in a way that certainly didn't 10 years ago, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I don't remember the first draft I cared about. Actually, I think I do. Hang on a second. I'm going to check what year this was. Uh, it was 2007. 2007 uh-huh. is the first draft I paid attention to. So yeah, so 10 years ago, it wasn't anything like this. Um, so yeah, but now the question is whether this is just going to be something like an, an, a niche product for for you know fans who just are already hardcore baseball fans and just want one more game to watch, mm-hmm. or whether it would be something more. I wouldn't think so. To me, there's a there's something about minor league baseball that um, it, it these it's it's these teams are sort of trying to be two things to two different people. On the one hand, they are an extension of the big league club that you know a lot of fans have loyalty to, but this is a, a very clearly a secondary part of the organization. It's not the big league club. So if you're a Cubs fan, you have some interest in the minor league system um, because they're a representation of the Cubs. And then there's also the local audience, which sees this team as as independent and doesn't particularly care that much about the Cubs, um, and uh, likes the you know likes the guys who are cycling through and and I feel like if if minor league ball uh, if these clubs were independent and they were still selling their players to big league clubs uh, the yeah. way that they did in like the 1920s, I feel like there would be potential for that. You could really get attached to a minor league team yeah. on its on its own merits. Mm-hmm. Um, but right now, there's too much of a of a subservient little sister kind of idea to really get emotionally into them. They only exist to most of us to serve the purposes of another body, and so for that reason, I have a hard time thinking that massive uh, massive numbers of fans are ever going to get too attached to the results. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, NCAA has the built-in school loyalties because you went to a school and you root for that school and minor league baseball doesn't really have the equivalent of yeah. that so and yeah and NCAA, and NCAA players are playing for their team you don't have to think like okay is 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 this guy you know playing for his team do I think of this guy as a Cedar Rapids colonel or do I think of him as a Minnesota twin Mm-hmm. And there's not that kind of mixed identity there, so it's simpler. It's it's easier to to feel loyalty. I think. Mm-hmm. Okay, play index time. Yeah, sure. Um, so I apologize to whoever pointed this out to me, but uh, somebody pointed out this week to me that uh, Derek Norris hit two three zero home runs in one game, which is an interesting thing. That uh, you that I don't well. I don't know how often that happens, but given that it's extremely rare for two for any player to hit two three zero home runs in a season, mm-hmm. uh, I would say not very often. Uh, uh, so I got to thinking about three zero counts, uh, or you know, over the years, and whether uh, teams are swinging at more three zero pitches mm-hmm. uh, or fewer three zero pitches. Uh, as Joey, Joey Votto hit a three zero homer the other day. Joey Votto also. And I might it might be a game day issue. It might have just been improperly labeled. But today, Joey Votto bunted with a runner on first and two outs. Did you see that? Now, no. again, this was just a description. And then I checked on Twitter, and there were people going, Joey Votto bunted. But they might have just been looking at game day, too. But 
that feels like a li- that's extreme Votto. Like even <laughs> by Votto standards, that's most, pretty extreme. The most the most Votto thing is where he just steps out of the box completely on like a two one pitch, and <laughs> it's just like a pitch right down the middle, and he just doesn't even look like he might possibly swing at it. That's my favorite Votto thing. So uh, so what I did is I I went to Play Index. Um, uh, uh, split finder. I went to the team split finder, which allows you to uh, set as a as your team major leagues, uh, over, uh, all major leagues. So instead of one team, all ma- all the major leaguers. And I looked at um, how many at bats they had that ended on three zero. And so this is not plate appearances. So walks are excluded. This is at bats. So the guy hit the ball, put it in play. Now this won't obviously capture all three zero swings. If you swing and miss it doesn't end the at-bat. If you foul it off, it doesn't end the at-bat. But I have to assume that, you know, it's, a, a, a good proxy, and, B, that it captures most swings. Because if you're swinging at 3-0 and you foul it off, you're an idiot. Um, so uh, so I, did, I did that, and then I, uh, I also clicked the option that shows total play appearances, and, and then I copied that into a Google Doc spreadsheet uh, so that I could just divide it really easily. And what I did is I actually uh, I divided the bats that end on 3-0 by total plate appearances uh, uh, that get to 3-0 minus intentional walks. So intentional walks are not going to be part of this plate appearances because that's not really an honest uh, uh, you know an honest pitch. Mm-hmm. So for instance, uh, you know if if there were you know say 10 at bats that ended on 3-0. Uh, and there were 110 at bats that got to 3-0, and 10 of those were intentional walks. Then you know, 10 out of 100 would be 10%. Okay, mm-hmm. and so then I I looked at those by year. I charted them by year to see if there was a trend. And before I reveal the results, I'm just curious. Uh, what do you think? I, this goes back to 1988. I have every year from 88 to 2014. What would you expect that chart uh, to look like? It's a it's a line graph. Mm, I would say a downward slope. Uh, and and why? What would be your rationale for that? Because I vaguely remember an article <laughs> that uh, Russell Carlton wrote about this, and I think that's what it showed, but I'm not positive. There was how, a there was a when when was that? Just curious. There was a like last year. There was a Verducci article where he argued that teams were or hitters were being too selective, taking too many pitches. I I think he used this as an example, and Russell wrote a response to it. Um, I could be misremembering, but um, but I, I don't know. Maybe just uh, just the appreciation of walks increasing or something. Yeah, no, the appreciation of walks increasing would certainly be a reason. On the other hand, uh, and I love to pull this quote out of the 2005 annual. I'm not going to quote it because I don't have it in front of me, but uh, in the comment about Nick Swisher, it's all about how the, uh, the A's, the money ball philosophy of – taking pitches actually is not about drawing walks it's about count leverage and that you know billy bean was banging it later on i read that billy bean was like banging his head because prospects didn't get that and they were just like trying to draw walks and he's like screaming at him no it's about count leverage and you know there's no better count leverage than 3-0 mm-hmm. uh when the pitcher just feeds one into you mm-hmm. um especially because he thinks you're going to take it and so it's a uh, it's way better than even 3-1 in a sense because the pitcher you can you can sucker punch him basically mm-hmm. uh Anyway, so yeah, that makes sense. Uh, the actual chart is it's a little nuanced and, and so there's a few different twists. Um, in the in the late eighties, early nineties, before the offensive boom, uh, the swing rate or the I guess we'll call it the swing rate, but I explained it's not exactly that. Swing rate was, you know, between about four and five percent. Um, and so looking at it now, we know that that's historically fairly high. Uh, but around 92, just as offense started to, to pick up a lot, it started to go up higher and higher. And mm-hmm. in 1996 and 97, it was very high. It was over 6%. Um, and looking at the chart uh, now, it's much higher because from that point on, starting in 97, I believe, maybe 96, yeah, 96, it just starts going straight down. 
And this is interesting because you could imagine that this would correlate somehow to the offensive environment. Yeah. But it doesn't. 96 was right in the middle of the offensive environment, and it mm -hmm. was going up, up, up. But then it just drops, drops, drops. And like by 2000, it's already down to 4% again. Mm -hmm. uh, and by 2004, still offensive boom. It's it's just 3 a little bit, a little bit more than 3%. Or I guess like 3 and a quarter percent. And it keeps going down, down, down. And then 2009, around the time that offense sort of starts to 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 stop you know the mm -hmm. this the so-called steroids era is, is kind of clearly cleanly over it starts going up again and last year was back at four percent um hmm. which is um the one two uh basically a, a four-year incline since 2009 and so i don't really know how to explain any of that <laughs> but what's interesting is how how kind of clean the lines are. It it really does feel like 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 the this was a this was a real shift because it's not like you're just seeing like spike valley spike valley spike valley. You're really seeing uh, you know sustained periods of incline and decline. So hmm. I don't know. Uh, if you have a theory, you can you can tell me. If you don't have a theory, I can move on. I have some some more fun facts about intentional walks. Or uh, not, sorry, not intentional walks, uh, three o pitches. Yeah, I don't. My only thought is that the called the strike zone has gotten bigger in the last few years, and so if you take the pitch, there's a higher percentage that it will be a strike. Yeah, but your the pitch that you swing at it when you talk when we talk about the three o strike zone and how wide it is. Those aren't the pitches that people are swinging at, you know. People yeah. are, people should be swinging at the good, you know, the, the fat pitches. I mm -hmm. mean, they're still only swinging at one in twenty-five, for goodness' sake. Mm -hmm. And even if you exclude all walks, by the way, it's still only like ten or twelve percent hmm. uh, of you know of strikes that they're swinging at. If you're listening and you have a theory, let us know. Yeah. All right. So I have some more uh, stuff on here. Okay. Because uh, I have a perfect really good spreadsheet that I that I can sort stuff on. Uh, stolen bases on 3-0 are way up. That is one clear trend. In, in, 19, in the late 80s and early 90s, there would be as as few as two stolen bases on 3-0 uh, per season. Uh, in 89, there were two. And and really, for like five years, it was like two, three, six, you know, that, that range. And Last yet, year, those were the years when everyone was everyone running was, all the yeah, time. Yeah. Last year, 25. And in 2012, uh, a high for the period, 30. So from 2 to 30, huge, oh. huge. And so that's a, a clear a clear trend. Yeah. Uh, you definitely see the era changing. Uh, no real patterns for hit-by-pitches, although I will note that uh, there are years where there are 11 3-0 hit-by-pitches, and there are years where there are zero, which just is probably a good thing to remember when we talk about so-called trends, how much random fluctuation can uh, can can cause you know big differences in in totals. There's no pattern. I don't think there's anything uh, there's any anything to draw from the fluctuation. Mm -hmm. uh, but sometimes zero, sometimes eleven. Uh, six players in that time have two. Six active players, I should say, have been hit by two pitches with uh, on three zero counts. Uh, one of them is Alex Rodriguez, who mm -hmm. is of course despised. One of them is AJ Pruszynski, who is despised. <laughs> Is that a coincidence? I don't know. I would guess that it's probably not. Uh, I would guess that if I was a pitcher uh, and I were facing, especially Alex Rodriguez, and it were three out and I were pitching around him, yeah, I'd probably take. I'd probably use that. I'd take a shot. That's <laughs> when I would take a shot at him. Uh, I mean, to me, a three zero hit by pitch uh, is is always suspicious. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, Jason Worth, Chase Utley, Joe Mauer, and Carl Crawford are the others. No trend of hate, hateableness there, mm -hmm. uh, but still. Uh, all right, uh, BABIP, this one, oh, wow. Okay, so BABIP also, uh, this is basically the same as the hit-by-pitch, just showing how much things can fluctuate uh, for no real reason. We're only talking about 500 bats or so that end in uh, 3-0 counts. So, of course, knowing that, there's going to be BABIP fluctuations. But, man, do they fluctuate. In 1999, BABIP on 3.0 was 2.29, and then the very next year, in 2000, it was 3.60. Uh -huh. And 
so if, if you really were like, you know, if you were a stat head in 2000, you would like, you probably would write a story about that. And yeah. Create some narrative. This year, by the way. It's sort of surprising that it could be as low as 229. It is, isn't it? This year, yeah. wait, though, wait, wait, wait. This year is actually the lowest ever. Currently, 203. Batters are babbipping 203 on 3 0 this year. Huh. So, uh, on pace, of course, to be the lowest ever by a margin, but uh, some margin, but it'll come back. Uh, overall, Babbitt, uh, what would you guess? I'll, and I'll tell you, uh, I'll tell you that the Babbitt in, in this era, uh, this twenty-six year era, is two ninety-six overall. Mm-hmm. What would you guess the Babbitt on three O's? Three forty-eight. Three oh two. Wow. I know. Huh. Right. That's, Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. It's <laughs> insane. <laughs> that makes me question everything I know about baseball. It's amazing. <laughs> that's like the whole reason I kept going on this. Because that's insane. Um, uh, let's see. Albert Pujols is the active leader in double plays on 3-0 with four. Um, but uh, do you want to have any guess on who the king of 3-0 swinging is? I, I sorted all the players by how often they swing on 3-0 by the same standard. Mm. And uh, so I have the active leader in 3-0. Any guess? Mm. Man, I have no idea because I'm, I'm thinking of, of guys who swing a lot, but those guys wouldn't be in 3-0 counts very often. Mm. Um, well, it's not total swings. It's percentage swings. Right. Well, <laughs> um, I'm just thinking how often does Pablo Sandoval or... Alfonso Soriano even get to three zero, but I, I I don't know one of those well, more, guys. Than, more than once. I mean, I yeah, sure, <laughs> one of them. No, it's it's not one of them. Uh, it's actually uh, the clear king is Victor Martinez, hmm. who has swung at fifty eight percent or has put in play fifty eight percent. Let me see. No, how do I put this? I I this I sorry I used a different method of of doing this. So this one is all I did is I took their bats that end on 3-0 and divided it by their walks that end on 3-0 mm-hmm. and subtracted their intentional walks that end on 3-0 from okay. the walks because those don't count. And Victor Martinez has 58% as many balls in play as ball fours on huh. 3-0. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's so far ahead of anybody else. Number two is Ryan Howard. All the way down at forty-one percent, uh, and then after that, you go down to David Ortiz at thirty-three percent, Albert Pujols at thirty-three percent. Um, mostly, you're talking about guys who you know have the green light, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, Billy Butler at thirty-two percent, and so you wanted to know Sandoval is at only nine <laughs> percent. So he's actually one of the most, one of the one of the most, and maybe I don't know, maybe it's just that. He doesn't get the green light because his manager knows he'll swing at anything. He can't be trusted mm-hmm. to to um, to to treat that with the uh, you know respect it deserves. Alfonso Soriano is thirteen percent. There is a challenger to Victor Martinez. Uh-huh. There there are two. In fact, Dom Brown is at sixty two percent. So he's higher than Victor Martinez, but in such a small number that I don't really count it. Uh, Will and Rosario is at sixty nine percent. Nine balls in play. Uh, 15 walks, two of them intentional. So basically, nine balls in play, 13 ball fours, hmm. and uh, and then uh, and then with only with only 15 plate appearances ending in 3-0. So again, way too soon to say. But Manny Machado, Manny Machado, getting the green light as a rookie, pretty impressive. Seven balls in play, eight walks. So hmm. almost you know almost half as likely. The clear leader, but in a sample issue there. Um, and uh, Jamie Wright, this has to be an exi- uh, a mistake. Jamie Wright has one ball in play. <laughs> Victor three. Martinez has a 341 BABIP on 3 0. Uh-huh. So at least when he when he swings, he hits the ball hard. And a 1555 OPS. Yes. He's got a, <laughs> yes. he's got a 702 slugging percentage on 3 0. Hmm. Uh, Manny it. Machado, Manny Machado, meanwhile, has a 143 slugging percentage on 3 0. <laughs> 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 he's got one single in all those at bats. All right, so if you want to repeat this analysis for every other ball strike count, which you're probably burning to do after <laughs> listening to this, please subscribe to the Play Index using the coupon code BP to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. All right, uh, 
you answered this question via email, so maybe we can just do it quickly. It comes from Paul, who says, I got into an office tussle with a colleague who argues that slugging percentage is more valuable than on-base percentage. I hope this was a, an actual physical altercation. In researching my stance that on-base percentage is approximately twice as important as slugging, I uncovered something odd. In 2010, the Tampa Bay Rays scored 802 runs, which ranked third in Major League Baseball. They did this despite ranking 27th in batting average, 10th in on-base percentage, and 14th in slugging percentage. How can this be? What was that particular team able to do that overcame their shortcomings and still score so many runs? My gut tells me that this most likely is a statistical anomaly of sorts. So you you already answered this question, but maybe we can you can just answer for this team specifically. And also, I suppose it's an answer for any team that manages to outdo its its underlying statistics. And it's even yeah. more impressive in this case, I suppose, because the, the Rays play in a pitcher's park. So the fact that they were able to to exceed their their triple slash stats is even more impressive. So how did they do it? Uh, they hit much better with runners on base. They had the best, uh, they had the 10th best OBP overall, but the best when runners were on base. They had the 14th best slugging percentage, but the sixth best, uh, when runners were on base. They hit into far fewer double plays than any other team in baseball that year. And they were the American League's best base running team by base running runs that year. All right. So that's, that's how you do it. And that's usually what it is, right? Yeah. It's usually that. Yeah. Usually, it's usually the runners on base thing. That's pretty much the first thing to look for on a team level. The, for an individual level, you first thing you look at is BABIP, and then you go from there. From a team level, first thing you look for is how they do with runners on base and uh, compare that to how they are overall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Um, this question comes from James in Fayetteville, Arizona. He says, if flags fly forever is true, then winning the World Series is the best thing your team can do in a single season to boost profits. But if you were the owner of a team looking for a good boost, what accomplishment besides a World Series win would best affect your income as an owner for the foreseeable future? Do you want the perfect game montage to begin every home game on the Jumbotron for years to come? Do you want to hang a banner near the hot dog stand for your MVP slugger? And he he lists a a list of possible accomplishments. Uh, Basically, do you want an individual season level achievement do you want a player who wins a Cy Young or an MVP or do you want a a special uh accomplishment like perfect game or a no hitter in a single game or do you want uh you know do you want to win I mean he lists like winning the wild card and winning the division and it seems like those are the obvious choices yeah we're, let's we're take away those, right? take, so take away wins nothing yes. can't have anything to do with winning yeah so it it just has to be an individual achievement, I suppose, or you know, perfect game and no hitter is kind of a team achievement in a way. But do you do you want a, a guy to take home some hardware? Do you want some special performance in a game that gets shown in highlight packages forever? What what boosts your bottom line the most? Uh, I'm I'm gonna say 57 game hitting streak. <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> Yes, that's that's. I would say. I mean, if you can get a, I would say a long enough hitting streak, or uh, maybe sixty scoreless innings, but a achievement that is um, a record that takes a long time to play out. And I'm not sure that either one of those actually does play take a long enough time to play out because by the time you, by the time you care about the hitting streak, it's usually two games from being over. Um, I mean. People started counting. People start paying attention. I feel like in the in the twenties, like I mean, everyone was talking about Nolan Arenado's twenty eight game hitting streak, and he was yeah, no, halfway said, to Dimaggio. Right, I said care about though. You you acknowledge it, but you don't mm-hmm. really care. It's not driving to you don't go to the game. Uh huh. I would say that maybe what when does it become a live look in? Thirty five, thirty four. Yeah, certainly, certainly by forty. Uh huh. So I mean, that's you're talking about. I'd say half of those are home games. So maybe you maybe you get eight to ten games where. See, I don't know whether people buy a ticket to go see whether a guy gets his his forty first game in a row with a hit. Um, certainly, I don't know the last the last handful. I would think you'd get some walk ups. You'd get some people going to see that. I'm I'm always surprised by how much uh, by how easily when a team uh, signs a player who's kind of 
you know, a veteran and who's starting to get into the milestone portion of his career. I'm always surprised by by how the new team just treats that record like like you know like they're part of it, you know, like they they hype it up. And yeah. I guess that it's just a matter of honoring their their player. But I think this is one reason I'd be a terrible owner is that I'd be like, that's not ours. Let's we're not getting we're not taking credit for that. Ignore that. Like James Shields today got a you know like a big ovation for his 1500th strikeout. If I were an owner, the first thing I'd say is almost none of those were for us. And what is 1500 strikeouts anyway? Right. And that and that's why I'd be awful. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. I, living in New York, it's it's amazing how much mileage the Yankees have gotten out of a single perfect game, out of Cohen's perfect game, Wells's perfect game. I mean, I have seen the last out of those games. I feel like hundreds of times just before before Yankee games or you know Yankeeography or Yankees replay on Yes Network. I mean, that stuff you it's one single game, so you get no you get no opportunity to drive ticket sales there, but people seem to have an endless appetite or at least they keep pushing those things. Um I, I've seen them so many times, but I guess I don't know whether there's really any extra revenue there. Maybe there's some extra sort of brand building value there to reinforcing some some great accomplishment, but you can't really sell anything unless you sell some some commemorative plaque or something, commemorative statue on the 20th anniversary of that game. Um, first, yeah, uh, first uh, openly gay player is what is what I'd want. I'd want one of my 25 to come out. Uh-huh. That's what I'd want. That's that's the money. That's would, the money achievement. How would you how would you monetize that? Um. That's a. We're too late in the episode to <laughs> to get into that. But I mean, yeah. you know, come on. It's either I was thinking it's either that or like having a Jim Edmonds catch, you know. And the Jim Edmonds catch doesn't quite have the staying power. No. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's it for this week. Uh, where there are some more excellent questions I have on my list. There, I will star them, and maybe we'll get to them next week. So thanks for sending questions. Please rate and review us on iTunes. Go to our iTunes page, search for Effectively Wild. There's a link on the BP podcast post. Rate and review the show. It's very simple and takes 30 seconds to just click on the stars, the number of stars that you think we deserve, and subscribe to the show. Helps us get new listeners. And you can always send in emails for next week at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. And we will be back tomorrow with a new show.